We're blessed to be together, and I'm glad to have the opportunity to talk to you about the book of Ruth. Um, we're going to study their story of how Ruth and Boaz came together and came to be married. And this story is set in ancient times under a different law than what we live under. And so it includes customs that are strange to us. Uh, it is our custom for individuals to select someone that they marry. And, and Ruth and Boaz getting married was based on uh, customs and laws that related to kinfolks taking care of each other. And that stuff we'll, we'll touch on as we go on through the week. But that, that's not what we do. You're, you're looking, even though you're quite young, some of you are closer to marriage age than others, but you're all thinking about the idea of, well, what kind of husband do I want or what kind of wife do I want? And you come to meetings like this. You see uh, people of the opposite gender, and you think about those things. And different homes have different rules for that. There are some homes that just let their kids date. And you go out and play that dating game of asking each other out, and it seems like every generation it's a little bit different. I was amused the other day watching an elder trying to figure out from one of the young ladies in his flock what all the terminology means today. You know, well, we're texting, but we're not talking. Well, we're, we're, we're talking, but we're not hanging out. Well, we're hanging out now, but we're not dating yet. And then, you know, and she's explaining all these stages, and I'm thinking... How on earth are we supposed to understand all that? And it's going to change in a few more years, and all the language will change. And then there's some families that they let their kids do that. And you date who you want to do, and you know, date and all like that. There are some families that are very concerned about the dating culture. And they teach their kids, you're not going to date. <laughs> That's not right, so we're going to court instead. And I'm not trying to influence your thinking one way or the other on the question of dating versus courtship and all the nuances and the differences between all those things because t we struggled with that with our girls when they were growing up and, you know, we, we didn't really find all the answers in the courtship end of the, of the, the discussion and we weren't comfortable with all the things about just willy-nilly dating whoever you wanted. There were a lot of things about it that, that we were concerned about and we did our best to navigate that in a way that we felt like honored God and served the best interests of our children and at the end of the day, it was a difficult discussion. And one thing that occurred to me through all of that, whether you're, you know, one of these that's read the book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, <laughs> and you're just not going to date casually, you'll only have this very supervised courtship, or whether you're somebody that goes full bore into the dating culture, wherever you're at, at the end of the day, you're going to meet somebody and get acquainted with them and socialize with them and make a decision about whether or not you're interested in them as a mate. And, and I want to tell you, in the book of Ruth, there is a beautiful story that offers biblical principles to guide us in that process. Whether you exercise that process through dating or, or very strict supervised courtship or somewhere in between, okay? And that's what we're going to study about with Ruth. A lot of people really love the story of Ruth and Boaz. And I want to tell you right up front, it is not a story about two people who magically fell in love. That is a concept that's very prevalent in our thinking, but that is not what happened in the book of Ruth. We don't read a whisper in there about them falling in love. We don't read biblical instructions regarding 
marriage and regarding selecting a mate that teach us that, well, you go until you just meet that just that right person and you just have this magical feeling of falling in love. That's not what the Bible teaches. And so if, if you're looking for a treatise on what a beautiful romance that was, you're listening to the wrong guy because we're going to talk about what's actually in the biblical record of the story instead of what people think of today is this idealistic, the secret to a long-lasting marriage is falling in love with, you see, and trusting who you've fallen in love with and all like that. The secret to a long-lasting marriage is mutual commitment to God. End of story. And what we find in the story of Ruth and Boaz is we find two people that are looking for godly qualities in one another that fit within their cultural norm of how they decided who to marry, and they got married based on those things. And I'm not going to teach about falling in love this week. I'm going to talk about shopping for groceries. And you say, oh, wait a minute, what, what do you mean? Well, you go to the grocery store, you up the can, and you read the label, and you look at the ingredients. And you read reviews about that product if you're, you know, a grocery Nazi. And you go nuts over that. And you, you know, you make these careful selections of what to feed your family and what not to feed family. And I'm going to advocate that's what you do when you select a mate. You look at the fruit. You look at the qualities. You look, you know, so to speak, at the list. All right? And, and if you happen to have a feeling that you equate with falling in love with that person... Whoop-de-doo. That's not going to be what makes your marriage last. What will make it last is you and your partner's mutual commitment to God. I'm just going to tell you something. The first time I laid eyes on the woman that became my wife, my first thought was, okay, I really need to marry this person. <laughs> I'm not telling you I fell in love. I just really liked her. Okay? But then we got busy getting to know each other. We studied the Bible together. We spent time together socializing. We eventually started dating, etc., etc., etc. And in my mind and in her mind, we were shopping for groceries. We were sizing each other up. Now we could tell all the other fluffy details that's all this heartwarming stuff they use to make romance stories about, but that's not why we're still married. Because I'm going to tell you, there have been days in our 35 years that she wasn't feeling it. She did not feel in love with me. Because sometimes I don't do things right, and that makes me hard to be with and hard to live with. And it's the same with her. There were days I was not feeling it. I was not emotionally feeling in love with her. And you talk to any of these folks here that have been married multiple years and you see them as strong couples, I'll guarantee you they've experienced times where they emotionally felt very stressed and stretched in their relationship. And the ones that last are the ones that are built around godly commitment to godly qualities, things that we find manifest in the story of Ruth. So that's what we're looking for today, and I hope you will open your heart to what the Lord teaches us about the value of these qualities in a relationship as we study Ruth. And I hope you'll think about them from the standpoint of who and what you're looking for and who or what you present yourself to be. Okay? So let's read these things. In Ruth, you've got a lady who left Israel because of a famine, 
And her and her family and her husband's family, they were living in a foreign land, and the men in the family died. Ruth 1, verse 6 through 14. She arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. <coughs> Therefore she went out from the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. So Naomi, the mother-in-law of this family, she's lost her husband, and then the two daughters-in-law, they'd lost their husbands. Naomi's sons had died. So they're looking at basically death is breaking the family up. And look what followed. Verse 9. The Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. So she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, Surely we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons. So the, Naomi's implying the, the habit of <clears throat> if, if um, a man died before he had sired sons to his wife, then she would marry the next brother in line in that family. And it was just, that's what you did. And Naomi's saying, I've had all the sons I'm going to have. I'm past childbearing years well, why would you wait around with me? Verse 13, would you wait for them till they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much <coughs> for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So Naomi here, in her relationship with these girls, is showing herself to be very unselfish and very realistic. Look, if I could have sons, it's going to be however many years before one of them's old enough for you guys to marry. How, how old a guy have to be to get married? 20? Let's just say 20 as a round figure. She's saying, are you going to sit and wait 20 years for me to have a son and him be old enough for you to get married? Are you going to restrain yourself from finding another fella? in that interim of time. So instead of being selfish and holding on to these girls and insist that they stick by her side, she's trying to be unselfish and say, feel free to go your way and do what seems best to you. So you see the, the seed of a good relationship here between these ladies, <coughs> and you see something in Naomi's character that's very special. In her relationship with her daughters-in-law, she's very unselfish. <coughs> and that's someone to be interested in and having that person as a friend and as a close associate. And so what we observe here is we observe that they were a close family. We observe that there was genuine love between these ladies. Though the common ground between them, the men in their lives, had died they still clung to each other, and the love, and, uh, the love even reached the in-law in relationships. Everybody jokes about in-laws and, you know, oh, no, my mother-in-law's come to visit me. There have been a jillion jokes told about that, and the reason they're all funny <laughs> is because sometimes that's hard. 
It, it is. The blinding of families is difficult. And it's really, it, it is not automatic, okay, to have a relationship where when you link up with your husband or your wife, that their parents and you just automatically mesh super well and get along super well. Almost all of the time, it takes an incredible amount of work. And this goes along with something that you can kind of think about. You may have heard this expression before. When you marry a person, you marry their family. Because their family becomes your family. And that doesn't mean if somebody comes from a difficult family that they don't get to have a spouse and so everybody leave them alone. That's not my point. My point is to get you to think about the potential difficulty in that relationship and to recognize that those difficulties can be overcome. <coughs> but it takes people doing what Naomi did and saying, you know what, I'm going to be unselfish. And I'm going to take my interests and I'm going to set them aside and think about what's best for that other person. And someday you're going to have a mother-in-law, and if you'll treat her that way, you've got a better chance. Someday, God willing, you'll have a father-in-law. And if you'll treat him that way, you'll have a better chance at a spiritually successful relationship. Now look at Ruth's loyalty towards Naomi. We've seen the love and the unselfishness from Naomi's part. Now let's look at Ruth's part in that. Ruth 1, verse 15 through 17. She said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you or turn back from following after you. For wherever you will go, I will go, and wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. And where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. <clears throat> Thank you, brother. I think some of y'all may have seen these commitment rings or commitment bracelets. You'll see a lot of married couples have them. Uh, a lot of times I see them where somebody gets them as like a 10th year or 25th year wedding anniversary gift, and it's got Hebrew writing on it, and it's a shortened version of that phrase right there. People, This is one of the most celebrated phrases in the Old Testament. People celebrate this phrase, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. People celebrate that as a, a, a token or an expression of romantic love and marital love. And, and that's not wrong to describe marital love in that way because that certainly captures the commitment that's required to make marriage work and to make relationships work. But this isn't about a marriage. This is just about family loving each other. If you're going to find a good spouse, you need to find somebody that loves their family like this. Because if they don't love their family like this, then it's not realistic to expect they're all of a sudden going to flip a switch when they say, I do, and learn to love you as their family like this. They might love you for a while as long as they think you're pretty or handsome, but as time goes on and the rigors of life set in and things get difficult and all of that will happen, when that happens, their love may turn to vapor and a breeze. But here we're seeing exhibited a level of loyalty associated with biblical love that if a person loves their family this way, there's a better chance they're going to, you know, love their spouse this way. So you just picked up the can at the grocery store and you looked at it 
and you saw somebody with an uncommon commitment and loyalty to the people that are dear to them in their lives. So think about Ruth's loyalty. Romans 1 and 31 speaks in a condemning way about those that are undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. That word that's translated unloving there is based on a word that means love of kindred. And it's just that word stated in the negative. The, the root word for the love of kindred, I don't think it's used in the New Testament, but the negative is used to describe somebody that doesn't naturally love family. And it means to be unloving towards family. <clears throat> and Ruth's not like that. What you see in Ruth's character is she clings in love to her family. And why would she love a woman like Naomi? Well, we've explored a little bit about her unselfishness. And as the story continues to unfold, you continue to see Naomi acting in Ruth's best interest and, and the kind of conduct that makes a person lovable or easy to love. That's what we see in Naomi. So Ruth is showing on her printed label there on the back of the can, she's showing, hey, this is something that matters. Family matters to me. I want to tell you something. <clears throat> I was talking to a couple one time that... Uh, one of, one of them's parents had fallen into ill health. It was advanced in years. And so that in-law needed, needed extra care. And in their family dynamic, their solution to that was they're going to move in with us. And so you've got somebody that is trusting their spouse to care for one of their parents. And I'm just going to tell you, that's not natural to have your mother-in-law or your family, uh, your, your father-in-law become a part of your home. And that is not the automatic easy button. You know, when uh, my mother was getting aged and her health was failing us boys, we all tried to convince her to move in with us. And, you know, the daughter-in-law were all on board. Let's do this. This is best for mom. And nope, she wasn't having it. And, and her lecture to me was, if I want to get up at 2 in the morning and turn the TV on blaring loud, then that's what I want to do. And y'all don't want that. <laughs> and so I'll just live by myself, thank you. Well, that sort of humorously demonstrates the difficulty of bringing an in-law into the home. But this brother in the Lord could trust his wife. But she loved his mama, and she would take care of his mama, and she would go out of the way to do for mama what mama needed. And it wasn't because it was easy. It was because he saw in her characteristics like what we see in Ruth. Now, maybe you'll never come to a point like that with your parents where you choose to move one of them in with you. I hope you don't have to reach that point in time. But there'll be other moments where there is tension and stress in the family. And if you select a person and present yourself as a person who's loving and loyal to family, which is a high moral trait, in scripture, then you're, you're dealing with something that is part of what it takes to make marriage successful. Okay? So let's keep reading. So Ruth sticks with Naomi, and they go back to Israel, and it says in Ruth 1 and 22, Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. <clears throat> I don't know if... Uh, any of you have ever been around any grain harvest? I'm going to guess probably not. Uh, when I was uh, 
in my mid to late teenage years, I had an opportunity to be around a little bit of it. I never worked at length in grain harvest, but I had some friends that their family did that, and so I went with them just a little bit to kind of get a taste for what it's like. Now this is with modern equipment, with machinery that did the hardest part of the work. <laughs> and you're out late at night, you're out in the heat of the day, it's very hot in the cab of that harvesting equipment. It's dusty. The grain dust is coming, not just the dirt, but the grain dust itself, and that aggravates the allergies and the eyes itch, and, you know, your, your nose is stuffed to the rafters. It's very unpleasant with modern equipment. Now imagine somebody with some kind of a sickle coming up to a stalk of grain about yay tall, and they're stooping over and cutting that off the ground and bundling that up and carrying it over here where those bundles are eventually gathered up and they're put in, in uh, on a threshing floor or something like that to shake the grain loose from the stalk. And then they put that in baskets and they shake those baskets and toss them up and let the breeze blow the chaff and the dirt away from the grain, and then it lands back in the basket. Maybe you've seen videos of people doing that. There's still countries where they harvest their grain like that. Thankfully, we don't have to. At the thought of going and joining a harvest crew, they're up in southern Kansas by now working their way to Canada, <laughs> if you want to get you some of that. The thought of that just makes my heart sink because that's very unpleasant work. And that's doing it with machinery, doing it by hand, how does that make you feel to think about having to tackle a job like that where you don't go do it for a couple of hours, you have to do it for days on end until all the grain is gone? Here's a feeling I'm trying to help us build up in our minds. When we have a big physical job setting out in front of us, we approach that with a sense of dread. If we're not careful, uh, I don't want to mow. You ever mow with one of those push mowers that the turning of the wheels turns the blade? Yeah, that's, don't do that if you get an opportunity to do it a different way. That's really hard. When I was a kid, I'd go stay with my oldest brother. That's how I had to mow his yard. That, that was unpleasant. When that time came around, my heart would sink at the thought of that. You look at this as the beginning of barley harvest, and Ruth could have come over the brow of the hill and looked down on that and thought, oh, great. We're going to have to get out there and work. Some people see hard jobs like that. But some people see difficult tasks as an opportunity to shine. As an opportunity to display their character qualities. I don't mean show off or be prideful about it, but I mean just show who you are and what you're made of. And that is character that's attached to a work ethic. I'm talking about a quality where you are not afraid of work. So the next time mom tells you to go in the kitchen and clean the dishes or empty the dishwasher or whatever unreasonable task that she binds your hands to, think about, instead of whining through the nose like a two-year-old, Think about using that as an opportunity to learn an ethic about work so that when you approach work, you don't approach it with a soul-defeating dread, but instead you approach it with a sense of enthusiasm. I remember as a young man seeing approach, uh, people approach grain harvest that way thinking, they're crazy. <laughs> no, they're not. <laughs> 
They learned a work ethic that let them approach these tasks with a sense of enthusiasm. And so here's Ruth on the cusp of an opportunity. She can show herself to be a working girl or she can be a lazy nail buffer. You may hear nail buffer more than once before this meeting is over. I'm talking about the girl that doesn't want to get her hands dirty, but she sits around buffing her nails all the time, and she doesn't want to do anything work-wise because she's scared to death she'll break a nail. That's what I mean. And in times like these, I think there's a lot of guys that are nail buffers, unfortunately, okay? So learn not to be afraid of work. Learn not to whine about it. I know there are things about it that are painful. There's a reason they call it work instead of play, okay? They didn't label it play. They labeled it work. And there's a reason that they pay people to do it because there are certain things about our tasks that are difficult. But learn to approach those difficulties with a sense of this is an opportunity. And that's what we find in Ruth's conduct here. Now, when she gets there to barley harvest, she finds Boaz, who was an accomplished man, Ruth 2 and verse 1 says, There was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. Now, number one, understand because this guy was a relative of Naomi's family, that means that under their laws and customs, he was a viable candidate to marry Ruth. Because Naomi was past bearing any more sons and them aging enough to be an appropriate husband for for Ruth or for Orpah, okay, they would have to reach further down the family line to find that eligible male, and that was Boaz. So just his placement in the family means he's a candidate. These aren't people that are going to get married because they fell in love. All right? They learned to treat each other with love, and they acted with love towards one another. They loved each other the way the Lord teaches us to do in marriage, but it was not to, a mud hole is something you fall in. Okay, love is something you choose to do or you choose to not do. Okay, so he's an eligible candidate for marriage in terms of their customs for finding a mate. And this says that he was a man of great wealth. So let's talk about that. Who doesn't want to marry somebody who's going to make a lot of money? I understand that. That having a lot of money, I'm told, is really fun. <laughs> I, you know, back when I was dating, I could put two $10 bills together and rub them together. That was a lot of fun back when I could do that. That's a little harder to do now because I got things and people to pay for. But I, I get it. it it's, it's understandable for that to be something that somebody would think about. But I want to tell you what matters in selecting a spouse and, and think about this, ladies, especially in looking for a man, is not that he's wealthy but that he's accomplished in his field. It was such that Boaz happened to be in an occupation and position in a way in life that he was able to be resourceful and make considerable income because he, besides whatever other business he had, he had an agricultural business. Apparently he was a landowner, so that was something he could make good money at. That may not necessarily be true about farming today. Maybe it's true for some farmers, but in that setting, he had an occupation that would let him make money. 
There's some guys that are, that are golden fellows that are really hard workers. It just happens to be that what they do and what they're good at doesn't necessarily generate that much income today. Okay? So when we talk about Boaz as an accomplished man, I want you to understand, I'm not trying to tell you to go find a fellow that makes a lot of money. I want to encourage you to find a guy that works hard, has good ethics, so that he's accomplished in his field. So if he's an engineer, then he's a good engineer, and in that field he might make a decent living. Okay? But if he's a street sweeper, hey, those guys need wives too. <laughs> You just want the one that's the best street sweeper he can be. You understand what I'm saying? So it's about having a, an ethic that makes you good at what you do, a sense of drive. <clears throat> yeah, I remember talking to a, a, a female one time about her selection of a mate, and she was going down through the laundry list, you know, of what she was, she was shopping for groceries, okay? And near the top of the label on the can she was seeking was, he'll make me a good living. He'll make good money. And we got a little ways down the list. And Oh, by the way, I want him to be a Christian. Now, if that's what you go shopping for, if you're not careful, that's what you'll find. And you might even successfully convince yourself that you've fallen in love with this guy. And this will last forever because it's clearly true love don't look at it that way don't be that shallow I'm not saying you have to go find the cheapest most pauper guy you can find and marry the poorest fella just to prove you're not shallow but don't make that a priority make looking for that work ethic and that sense of being accomplished a priority you know here sets this guy that's you know, 35 years old, I'm going to paint a stereotype, okay? And there may be people that you know that fit the stereotype. And if there are, okay, I'm sorry, but I'm just painting a stereotype. He's 35 years old, he lives in his mom and dad's basement, and he's still really not sure what he wants to do for a living. He just knows that he wants to make a lot of money, and he wants, he wants it to be a lot of fun. <laughs> that's not who you're looking for. And fellas, that's not who you want to be. So here comes the old man lecture. For the love of all that's decent, be a man. And figure out what you've got to do to take care of a family. If you can't feed her and the babies you make, then you better think twice before you start smooching on her, fellas. I'm being dead serious. Just because you're pretty today doesn't mean you'll be able to take care of those babies 10 years from now. Because it's all fun and game till the squalling brats show up and every one of them's hungry. And all their doctors cost a lot of money. <laughs> you ever talk to somebody who's buried a loved one because they couldn't afford to pay the doctor that could have healed them? You think about that. Being a man is about more than things that our culture twists in the view of masculinity. Be the kind of guy that will catch Ruth's eye. And if you're interested in a girl who doesn't care that you're that guy, then you don't need her. And if you're looking at a guy and that doesn't matter to him, I don't care how pretty he is and how shiny he's buffed his nails, you don't need him. Because someday he'll be your children's dad and he's going to be what teaches them what life's about. And you want that to be some guy that has these ethics.
Boaz was an accomplished man. Look in Proverbs 10 and verse 4. He who has a slack hand becomes poor, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. When the famine hit the land, these guys weren't too prosperous, so they went somewhere else. Sometimes tragedy strikes, sometimes financial disaster strikes, and that inhibits a guy's ability to make a living. We understand that. Sometimes you're working in an economically flourishing period. We're, we see ourselves in that kind of a period right now in the, in the modern Western world. There's lots of opportunities. The idea is whether there's a famine in the land or whether there's plenty of rain and things are going great and the economy is strong, be the guy that works hard because that guy will tend to be the one that does better for his family. And the one who has a slack hand or who's lazy, who's weak in the work that they do, they tend to become poor. The interesting thing about the book of Proverbs, it concerns itself with poverty, but not victimhood poverty. In other words, it doesn't talk a lot about poverty that happens to people because they're mistreated. It talks about self-inflicted poverty. And that's something that, don't sit and wait for politicians to talk about it because it's not politically correct. But the biblical reality is a lot of financial suffering happens because people are lazy. I can't, you start talking to business owners. <laughs> you start talking to people that, that are trying to hire from the labor pool they get. And I'm telling you, one right after the other, there are two sad stories they keep crying about. Number one, I can't find anybody that wants to work. And number two, I can't find anybody that will show up sober on time consistently five days a week. That's a problem. I had a guy bidding a concrete job for me the other day, and I was talking to him about you know, the job and some other things related to it. And before long, he got off on what he's concerned about in the Western world today. And his, one of his top two concerns was a loss of a work ethic. He said, I cannot find people that will show up and work. Everybody wants to lean on the shovel. And you look at this guy, five seconds of looking at this guy, <laughs> and... You could see he believed in it and he lived it. He could retire right now, but he keeps working because that's what's in his heart. And you look at his family and the offspring that he's raised and you've got people that work because that's what they learned from their dad. And that's the ethic that we're talking about. In Proverbs 22 and 29, do you see a man who excels in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before unknown men. Being a hard worker tends to bring you accomplishment in life. Whether you're that street sweeper, you're, you're, you're the best street sweeper there can be. Or if you're that guy that has a, a more uh, affluent occupation, then you do well at that. In Ecclesiastes 9 and 10, here's the bottom line. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you are going. We had a young man stay with us a couple of years back. He spent a couple of months in our home at different times, and he was at a point in his life where he was making a career decision. And I said, well, what are you going to do? He said, I want to go to school to become an electrician. You know, that's one of those things that some would say, well, you need to get a four-year degree and get the highest education you can and, you know, be that guy. And, you know, if you have that academic talent, then by all means pursue that, Okay. If you can be a lawyer, go get you some of that. That's great. But for this guy, where he was at in life, that was an outstanding choice for a lot of different reasons. Number one, because that's who he was capable of being. 
But number two, this country doesn't have enough plumbers and electricians. You know why? Because men are lazy. And they don't want to go do the work that this kid's willing to do. Now, he's going to go to school for a couple of years, and he's going to get out, and before long, he'll be making 25, 30 bucks an hour. That sounds good. That's not as much money as you might think. But I'll tell you, because of his work ethic, he'll be the best electrician he can be. And it won't be long. I talk to guys like this all the time who come from strong Christians' home that teach a work ethic. It won't be long before he'll be the foreman. He'll be the lead guy. And he'll be over guys that are 10 years older than him because he works. And he shows up sober. And he's there every day when he's supposed to be. And he stays till the end of the day. So think about those things. Ruth planned to work. And she planned to show her work ethic in order to find favor. Look at Ruth 2 and verse 2. How did she see body harvest? She saw it as an opportunity. So Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. I wish there was a way to set up a one-acre patch of grain where each of you could go through there and just go down through one row of grain and gather that up. And let's wait till about three in the afternoon to do that. And you could experience the heat of the sun and the difficulty of that physical labor, okay? And then recognize what kind of heart it takes to say, Mama, please let me go stoop over and do that all day until my back screams at me so hard that I can't sleep at night. That's somebody that's not afraid to work. She's not a nail buffer. She's a woman of character. And in her mind, this will get his attention. This is how I'm going to find favor. How do you want to find favor with the boys? It's about to get personal. What are you going to do? Put on a little more paint? You're going to hike up your skirt a little bit? Is that how you're going to find favor? I know some that do. I know some have the mentality, well, I'll never find a husband unless I do that. Several years ago, when we had this series, I used this expression, and I'm going to use it today. You may get tired of it. I'm sorry. But you determine by what kind of fish you catch by what kind of bait you use. My late father, he loved catfish. And catfish are bottom feeders, okay? Unless you butcher them right and dress the meat just right, their meat can be kind of nasty. There's certain ways to get around that. So the bottom feeder fish, or they're kind of low on the food chain in the fish world. You know, bass, crappie, some of those others, they're a lot sweeter, milder tasting, you know, fish. And it takes work to make catfish that quality. And a lot can do that. But... He loved to catch catfish because they get big. And he used this punch bait that was vile beyond all boundaries of reason. He was excited one day telling me about this recipe he found for punch bait. And any of you that catfished, I, I'm sorry, I don't know the recipe. But it's great, son. It's got rotten cheese in it. <laughs> it's got meat. I don't know. He put dead cows. I don't know what all he put in there. And you take the lid off of it, I mean, it would send your nostrils running for the hills because it was nasty. And he said, don't ever touch it with your hands because you will never get it washed off. <laughs> he called it punch bait. You know why they called it punch bait? 
I thought maybe because it stank so bad, it'd make you want to punch the guy that made it. But here's why they call it punch bait. Because you took a sponge and put it on the hook, and then you used a stick to punch it down in there because you didn't want to touch it. Because if you touch it, you'd literally never go. You'd have to sandblast the skin off your hand to get rid of the smell, okay? Stink bait catches the bottom feeders. If you use shallow, spiritually vile things to try to catch a spouse, then that's the kind of spouse you're likely to catch. And that's kind of spouse that you're likely to have. So if you're presenting yourself in a carnal, immodest, lewd way is what catches your husband, then what's going to happen five years from now when you don't look quite as good as you do today? You've defined your marriage by, I want a guy that this is what turns his head. And that will turn his head. And don't be shocked if he doesn't stay home. And fellas, if that's what matters to the girl that you're looking at, then what's going to happen five or ten years later when marriage has gotten a little stale and she's feeling a little lonely and she wants some attention from a guy and for whatever reason you're just not cutting the mustard, what do you think she's going to do to get that attention? You need to think about these things. Ruth thought about using the bait that mattered, presenting herself as a woman of character, willing to work so she could find favor, even if the work was very difficult. That's what she was willing to do. Proverbs 31, verse 13 and verse 22 says, speaking of the virtuous wife, she seeks wool and flax and chow down on this, willingly works with her hands. She makes tapestry for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. She works hard. And in the, in the context of Proverbs 31, the, kind of the hypothetical arrangement here, this is a king's wife, but she's not too good to work. And when she works, she does so willingly with her hands. So build a habit now of when mom commits, fellas, the grievous injustice of asking you to carry out the trash. I get it. That's a heinous evil that is placed upon men's shoulders. Don't whine about it. Just do it. Hide your pain, okay? And think about all she does for you. Think about wanting to please her. And before long, you might reach a level of insanity where you actually carry it out before she gets a chance to ask. You learn to appreciate it. Not because it's fun to handle the garbage, but because it's gratifying to be the unselfish person that thinks about someone beside yourself. Go back to Naomi's character at the beginning of the story. It's gratifying to do that and to be that. I mean, one day, in Tanya and I's marriage, one day I carried out the trash because I wanted to do that for her. It was the best day of my life. It felt great. I'm thinking about trying it again. It, it really, it's nice. And she was like, wow, that was good. Work willingly. Genesis 24 and verse 20. Look at this young lady. She quickly emptied her pitcher into the trough, ran back to the well to draw water, and drew for all his camels. She's about to become somebody's wife. 
She's not just working. She's not just working willingly, but she's running. Have you ever seen somebody run with water and run to complete a task? I remember years ago, was holding a meeting at a place, and this family had a 16-year-old daughter. I was already married, and happily so, but I noticed the 16-year-old daughter. She was a very nice young lady, and they had us over for a meal. And during that meal, that 16-year-old daughter was just running back and forth and working at the table. It was really impressive. And I leaned over and told my wife, she's going to make somebody a good wife. I could just see it. She was glad to work and to tend to the guests, and she showed that kind of character right there. You know, it wasn't that long after that she married a guy that became one of my best friends. You know what kind of wife she made? A wonderful wife. She worked herself silly, taking care of the home, taking care of him to enable him to fulfill his occupation. She worked herself silly raising their kids. They're almost all raised now. That's a long time ago. She worked herself silly doing what she could do to contribute to the family means, just like the virtuous wife. She was a lot like this girl here in Genesis chapter 24. You know why he had that kind of wife? Because he looked for that kind of girlfriend. Imagine the science. You have the kind of spouse based on the kind of people that you date, court, whatever you want to label it. And Boaz noticed, Ruth 2, verse 3 through 7, then she left and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servants who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? He's baying up the right tree. He's recognized somebody that's willing to work. So the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered and said, It is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and has continued from morning until now, though she rested a little in the house. Understand that in that setting, when they said, well, this is the one that came with Naomi, and here's what she said, he didn't just hear, oh, yeah, she willingly worked, but he also heard she's available. Now, the narrative doesn't say this, but I believe because of the way marriages came together in that culture, I believe at this point, Boaz's wheels started turning. This may be a potential wife. This may be a good candidate. He noticed her work ethic. Titus 2 and verse 4 says, uh, speaking of the young women, uh, the older women teaching the younger women that they may admonish the younger women to love their husbands and love their children. What Boaz is seeing in Ruth is, oh, that's the one that came with her mother-in-law. That's the one that has this natural family love we talked about. That's the one who shows loyalty. That's the one who's willing to work. That's the kind of person that will take care of their family. It ain't funny, guys, when you got to work all day and you got to be the one that gets up and takes care of the baby at night because mama's too lazy. It's, it's unfathomable to me, but we're always hearing stories of somebody finding a baby in a sack in a garbage dumpster somewhere. There are some ladies that they won't do this. 
And you don't want anything akin to that to be the mother of your children. You want to find somebody that's that loving towards family. So you look for someone who has those traits, who has those character traits. Boaz showed himself to be a generous gentleman. In Ruth 2, verse 8 and 9, Boaz said to Ruth, You will listen, my daughter, will you not? Do not go to glean in another field, nor go from here, but stay close by my young men. Let your eyes, or excuse me, by my young women, let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. He being a gentleman, he's saying, look, I got guys working in the field. I told them to leave you alone, keep their hands off of you. I've had young ladies in my care before who stayed in our home and worked with us. And I've been in positions before while I went over and got the guys by the ears and said, if you touch her, I will kill you. You leave her alone. Because as long as she's with me, she's my daughter, which means you're a total scumbag and you'll never be good enough. So don't touch her. Okay, say it with me now. Don't touch her. And that's what he told his men that are working for him. You leave her alone. And he told her, you stay with these ladies, you work with them, and you'll be just fine. And these other guys will provide water for you. When you're working out in the heat of the sun and physical labors like this, having water brought to you is a really, really big deal. Okay? So he's being a gentleman. He's treating her with courtesy. How valuable is that? 1 Corinthians 13 and 4 tells us that's what love is. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Is not puffed up. Look for a guy that is courteous and kind. In his cultural point of view, he may not do all the things that you would think of, but look for those character traits. You know, we kind of have the whole hold the door open for them kind of thing. That's sort of fading a lot. The feminist movement has, has made guys fearful that that's a bad thing to do. Fellas, it's never bad to be polite to a lady. And if she rejects that, that's her problem. Okay? You be polite and courteous. If you're walking along together, if you're starting to text or talk or hang out or whatever the language is, if you're starting to do that and y'all come along to a mud hole, you lay down face first and let her walk across on your back if that's what it takes. Okay? Because a guy that'll do that will get up with you on those midnight feedings. If, if you're nursing, he'll hold the baby to you while you sleep. He'll do that for you. He will even change. I'm sorry, fellas of young kids, he'll even change the soil diapers. He will. Now, he may take them in the, out in the yard and hold them up by the neck and hose them off, but he'll change them, okay? Find that guy, look for that guy, be that guy that has that kind of courtesy. And look at her response of humility. Ruth 2 and verse 10. So she fell on her face, bowed down to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? No sense of entitlement. No sense of, well, I'm hot looking, so he owes it to me. He better treat me this way. None of that. But she responds to his courtesy with humility. Growing up, we had chickens, and there was a saying on our place that I think come from the agricultural economy days, you know, in my parents' and grandparents' generation, that if the hen crows, it's a bad omen. And I know you think, well, the roosters crow. Well, I'm going to tell you, I've seen hens crow. I don't know what's going on in that chicken's head, but something's going on that's not good, and the old-timers thought that was a bad sign. 
Well, you go around looking at a lot of homes, you'll find out there's still some hens that crow. And that's a breaking of the authority design in a home. And Ruth wasn't a hen that crowed. She was humble. And fellas, if you want a wife that's going to cooperate with you and work with you, you need to find one that's humble. Now, this idea of bowing down, that's not what we do. It was while just to get on my wife's nerves, I might try that, but it doesn't work, so don't try that, fellas. <laughs> but it's just not our way to do that. But there are other gestures and body language that we can employ that shows our humility. And we can respond to each other in humility the way, the, the way that Ruth responded to Boaz's kindness with humility rather than entitlement. You better treat me this way. She responded with humility. Now what signal does that send the Boazes of the world? Well, this girl doesn't feel like I owe it to her. She feels blessed to receive it. And so this is somebody that's going to be grateful when she's treated well. Proverbs 22 and verse 4, By humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. Humility is what brings success. Look down the road 10, 15, 20, 25 years and identify that couple that's a lot older than you and see him doting on her and treating her well with respect and with honor and with kindness and see her responding in kindness and it's just so much syrup. Somebody's wondering who's going to cook the pancakes, okay? They're just being so nice to each other. You know what got them there? was they made choices long ago to look for that and be that kind of person. That's what brings honor to your family. That's what will bring honor to your marriage, showing that kind of humility. Proverbs 29 and 23, a man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. I've known a few that insisted on being treated like a queen. They demanded it. And it was great as long as it lasted. But that firecracker will fizzle out because after a while, he's going to get tired of it. And he'll find somebody else. Now whose queen are you? See, be thankful. Be grateful. Be humble. Everything we see developing in the relationship between Ruth and Boaz shows a picture of marriage. And the Bible teaches us that marriage shows us a picture of our relationship with the Lord. The church is the bride of Christ. So to be a part of the church means to be a part of Christ's bride. Now think of Ruth's humble characteristics and think about you and I being humble as being a part of the Lord's church. And I wonder if you're part of the Lord's church today. If you've never obeyed the gospel, you're not. And if you've been taught and you're ready to obey the gospel, we'd love to assist you in that and welcome you to be a part of the Bride of Christ. Humble yourself to that choice. If we can help you in that, we'd love to do so. Or if as a Christian you need the church to pray for you, we'd love to help you in that way. If we can help you in either way, please come. Have a seat on the front while we stand and sing.